Zig coming in at the top. Today on the show, we have Richard X. Heyman, a singer, songwriter, and drummer who you might know from various outlets, one of which is his expansive solo career under the name Richard X. Heyman, which has now 14 albums. And his first one, Living Room, Rolling Stone magazine proclaimed as an undiscovered treasure. Um, Richard has a dense career. He also plays uh, drums with the, the New Jersey group, the Doughboys, a very noted group who uh, disbanded and got back together. And in between, each member had a, a very successful career endeavor on their own part. Um, along with Richard, the lead singer of the Doughboys ended up singing for Ram Jam. You know, the group who does uh, Black Betty. Um, but yeah, so Richard was really insightful to talk to in a career that was very dense and it was hard to even grapple all the twists and turns that it had to, to navigate this conversation. But he has a new album out called Copious Notes, or a new album that's almost out. They have a Kickstarter going, and if you donate to the Kickstarter, you get um, all these really cool insights to the album, how the album is made. Um, he's recording all these alternative takes, so to say, of like an acapella version, or a, or a solo piano version, or um, a stripped-down acoustic version of all the songs that are on the album. There's something sonically pleasing about hearing one thing as a completed whole then seeing it taken apart and then put back together, I think. Also, there's an interactive component with like some interviews and some insights. Um, definitely check it out if you go to Richard Hayman, richardxhayman.com. It's right on the front page. You can learn how you can help out there. Um, we we're going to listen to a track off the record. This is the last track, Greater Good, off Copious Notes. It's within us now If we don't despair 
Greater Good off the album Copious Notes, Richard X. Heyman. Um, before we get any further, this podcast is mixed by Studio 44 CLE. Studio 44 CLE for any of your video, streamed, or audio needs. You can have Jay Sparrow at Studio 44 Cleveland at gmail.com or Studio 44 um, Cleveland on the Facebook, and he'll make your stuff sound good. Lastly, if you can like, rate, subscribe, subscribe, rate, review the podcast on all the podcast platforms, it helps me keep uh, talking to insightful people like Richard and sharing those insights with you. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Richard X. Heyman. All right. Is that so we're good? Yeah, we're good. All right, perfect. So what got you uh was there music in the family? Not um overtly. My father played trumpet okay. when he was young. And that was pretty much the only direct musical influence in the family, but they they my mother and father both loved to listen to music, so there were a lot of records just to listen to mainly big band jazz and Broadway shows and things like that. But I had three older sisters as well, so they they brought in all the rock and roll stuff, and I started to, to hear the rock and pop albums through my sisters and singles. And then they had their boyfriends would come over, and there would be parties, and records would be left, and I started to hear a lot of R&B and soul music from stuff that was just left around the living room. Nice. The sibling it's always the older siblings that uh that bring the cool stuff in. What what was like a Yeah, I know. <laughs> I got turned on to like James Brown and Nice. I I Tina Turner review, all these great things I would have never known about as a kid, but they were just lying around and I'd just stick them on the turntable and see what they were and I was like, Wow, I like this. That's that's the beauty of like the record in, or the the CD. Someone has to show it to you. It, it's not algorithmically placed in your in your ear holes. You got to like find it, and then there, it means a little bit more coming from somewhere. I think. Yeah, it's for sure. Yeah. It's a mixture of just kind of seeking it out and happenstance. Right. These things just happen to be there, and they caught my attention, and I was already drawn to music anyway. So it just kind of expanded my interests and influences as well. Got, did the big band stuff click? For sure. I listened to a lot of uh, Benny Goodman and Artie Shaw and all these, Count Basie, Duke Ellington. And I was drawn to that as a drummer because that was my first instrument. Right. And you started and drumming like of, five, right? Yeah, that kind of kind of jazz drumming just seemed to come naturally to me and when I got my first drum set I just sat down and started playing it in that style I don't know where it came from nice. did you take lessons or was this all just playing by the record I took some initial lessons didn't particularly take I mean I I, I, I know my fundamentals in music and, and Basics, but uh, I wouldn't say I was a, a trained, schooled musician. But 
I certainly learned from, you know, a couple of private lessons and I took any music courses I could do school. Gotcha. I was in the marching band. Oh, okay. All right. So you could read, you know? Yeah, I could, you know, the basic stuff. Right. Well, the basics is, I mean, that's the building blocks of everything. And if yeah. you can make the basics work for you, you can make anything work. But I, I wouldn't say that it's necessary for pop rock musicians. Um, I mean, just have to look at the Beatles to know that. Right. So there's a kind of a natural instinct that takes over in pop music that can go beyond the actual structural learning of, of notes on paper. I agree with it. Well, then that's why it's popular. That's why more people can lock onto it because you're not like, oh, this is in seven. This is hip. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. It's supposed to justify. Yeah, I know. I, I love the fact that it's so visceral. I mean, I listen to music and I try to forget sometimes about the knowledge of what I'm I'm hearing. You know, because if you sometimes get too technical, it gets in the way of of the enjoyment of just the emotion it can bring to you. So I like to forget about that. And and I find when something's really good, that happens naturally. It could be just one chord or three chords, and I can't even, I don't even want to think that they're going from, you know, the one to the four. I just feel it. Right. Well, it takes it, it's interesting, the more you learn about something, being able to separate yourself from it and fully enjoy it for what it is, how other people hear it, you know what I mean? It's kind of like yeah, looking yeah. at the, the tree in the forest. Yeah, that that's the beauty of, of music. And there's two aspects there's there's putting it out and performing it and then there's the listening right and, and two different things sometimes because I, I find uh that sometimes when i'm performing i've got to remind myself you know to really listen because you get so wrapped up in doing it right that you forget that whole part of of you gotta be Really listen not only to yourself but to other players around you. What what's happening? I agree. It, it's well when you put leading up to the show, right? So you had to book it. You had to write the music. All this stuff goes into the two percent of the career, which is playing music, which is why you're in it, right? Right. The promotion yeah. and everything. So and the, you're reading the room and like it it. It's crazy how that kind of goes to the wayside. All these other things cloud your mind and. You should just be listening to what's happening and going with the flow yeah. of the group, and that can easily be super overshot if it's I don't know if it's a rough night or <laughs> there was a fight with the the owner coming in or the drummers yeah. uh, <laughs> forgot the hi hat yeah, sand and it's moving. Yeah, I've been through it all. <laughs> I can imagine the logistics of gigs and all that stuff. You know, carrying a Hammond B three organ up three flights of steps, you know, with the Leslie speaker. I've done, I've done all that stuff. And being a drummer in the band, you got used to carrying everything. Oh, God, yeah. I mean, first, you know, you just got to get it out of your residence into the car. Right. And then, you know, you need a car that can fit, especially as the drum sets got bigger and bigger. 
because I, I went through a period at one point where I was using double bass drum, <laughs> double, triple toms, and right. I had so many drums I could barely fit them in the car. And then at one point I started getting bigger drums. So I, had, I, went in, I literally had a 28-inch bass drum at one point. <laughs> it looked cool. It sounded loud. It, yeah, it looked great. It, it just was like sitting behind a Mack truck. It felt powerful sitting behind this huge bass drum. But now, in the past several years, I've settled on a 24-inch bass drum. It just seemed just the right size. I was kind of influenced by a couple of favorite drummers. One was Dino Dinelli from the Young Rascals, the nice. Rascals now. And, of course, Buddy Rich used the 24. He's a big hero. Coming from the big band era, that's that's the guy. You know, that's the drummer of drummers. <laughs> like, uh, yeah, yeah. there's no argument. All the rock guys go back to him. Like, there's there's something to that 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 shift from like big band and jazz to rock, and like the the time where like those groups were still on top, kind of and lingering with each other. Um, did you run into that switching over, like kind of getting starting with jazz and getting influenced by rock? Was there a time like? Uh, yeah, well, they, first, a lot of the drummers that influenced me, a lot of them that were British, you could tell that they had a bit of a jazz background. You know, Charlie Watts, of course. Right. And uh, a big influence on me was Mitch Mitchell, who played with Jimi Hendrix. Yeah. And he's like very kind of. Very jazzy. Very jazzy and. and uh, like Jojo Jones, or just he just had chops, like, and and you could, you know, he played uh, a lot of time, uh, a lot of the time with uh, traditional grip, which I still do. I, I go back and forth between match grip and traditional grip. Yeah, what, what? It's just certain things I can do better with the traditional grip that modern drummers don't even attempt. They don't even know how to do it. It's an interesting like switchover. Is there what what do you use like um the match grip for then? If if traditional is kinda like your oh, sometimes if I'm just really walloping the the backbeat and I want to play with the butt yeah, of the okay. stick, I, I turn it around and uh I just do match grip. I find with the traditional grip I usually use the stick in the you know, right position with the head on the drum, not the butt of the stick. Just seems a little too weight, weighty for my fingers. But you know, back to what you were saying, though. Um, yeah, there was definitely a, a crossover for me, starting as a jazz drummer, and then being influenced by the rock drummers. But at the same time, trying to keep those jazz chops up and incorporate them into my rock playing and vice versa because there's things in both worlds that can be very useful. Right. And like, it's almost like with the, the jazz uh, um, approach, you're moving light years be kind of uh, beyond the rock approach. And it's almost like dialing back in a way to not overdo it. So there's like, it seems like to, to mix the jazz into the rock in the right way, there's like this, this fine line of too flashy <laughs> or <laughs> where's that coming from or too hip. Maybe that's the way to put it in, in the pocket. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
was that an easy uh, kind of medium to find, or are you still still working on it? I I am very like emotionally attached to music, and it just makes me you know, there's a visceral response as I'm playing or listening. And it's whatever it is, you know, it just yeah. moves me a certain way, you know, because a lot of times you hear drummers and they'll be playing a backbeat and then they'll put a fill in and they'll say, okay, why is he putting a fill there? And for me, the answer is because the music told him to do it. It just moved me as a listener and player yeah. to add something extra there. And sometimes people look at Phil's as playing uh, busy, but I, I think of them more as just accentuating, you know, the dynamics, especially if it's the right kind of Phil and it's working for the song. And, you know, you know, it's the old cliche that everything should be in the service of the song. And I'm certainly a song-oriented person as far as, you know, my musicianship is definitely towards the song right trying to aid the song so when did that like um mindset come into play like the, there's there's one step from like learning to express yourself with the instrument right which was drums when did mm -hmm. um the 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 songscape right being able to see uh the song as a whole kind of click was that when you started playing with bands or was that like kind of just a process of learning the drums? Well, you have to, yeah, no, it was definitely with playing with the bands and just learning from others. I mean, in the very early days, I would play along with with some of the big band records. And so you got that structure under your belt. And then when rock and roll started to really become the main thing that I, I was involved with, you just learn from your influences. And then the beauty of it is you hear all these different people playing and then you start to think, okay, what is it that I, I can uh, contribute that's my own thing? You know, and if you're lucky, all those different influences sort of become part of uh, your own stamp and, and you take, you know, you kind of put a little twist on it and it becomes your own thing. Right. No, I think that's key is um, wearing your influences on a, in, on your sleeve in a way to like show who you are because yeah. that's what moved you. Yeah, there's that fine line, you know, where you, you don't want to totally copy. Right. But you have to be influenced. So you, you, at first, maybe you just do what you've heard, and then you, you kind of mix it up a little bit and change it around. And you're doing something that nobody else did exactly like that before. And that's one of the pleasures of, of you know, creating. So um, in high school, you were playing in, like, jazz, a big band. When did the, the ascots come around? Uh, I started... That with uh, a friend of mine, uh, Mike Crusoe, who's a bass player, and I was literally like, I think, 12. <laughs> I was like yeah. 12 or 13. And uh, that evolved into a, the same band, but we changed it into the Doughboys, and 
were doing a lot of kind of what I guess you'd call garage rock. Nice. Which what? was like a kind of more raw R&B side of rock. Even though I was a closeted Beatles fan within the band because we weren't a real melodic band. It was more towards the R&B. So I had a lot of kind of melodic pop instincts that I kind of had to keep to myself for a while. That's interesting. It's 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 definitely uh, so. W- was there like a, a click a, a lineup change or anything that went from Ascot to Doughboys, or was it just like we need a different name, or was there just like the time time in between? What happened was uh, we had a manager at the time, and he came up with the name the Doughboys, and he thought it would be like a little gimmick for us to wear World War One uniforms. World War One Army uniforms. Oh, okay. And guys in the Army in World War One were called Doughboys. Yeah. So that's where that came from, and we uh, did that because uh, we were told to do it by <laughs> this guy who was our manager, and we just went along with it. But uh, the band was basically the same. I mean, there were some personnel changes. We started. Uh, as a four-piece, and we, we went up to a five-piece, then we, when we started dwindling down, back down, to become a three-piece at one point, like a power trio. Right. And was that, and then, did that change names? I'm sorry, go um, When you went down to a three-piece, was that a different band? No, it was still called the Doughboys. Oh, okay. But it was the same, you know, Mike and I were the rhythm section, and uh, we had this guy, Willie, on guitar, who's the same guitarist from the beginning. That's great. That's crazy that the start playing at twelve and still be, you know, like I, the the lifespan of bands isn't quite that long. Like you usually get like five years, and then someone moves somewhere, or something shifts to something, someone has a kid. Yeah, well, <laughs> we, you know, when it was all very local, we were all friends and and we lasted through I was in junior high school and we lasted until everybody started to graduate and then, yeah and then people did drift off and you know you get into your late teens and early 20s and then I started expanding and playing with a bunch of different people and eventually I, I moved from New Jersey down to Maryland and that's where I hooked up with Linkway and got that gig Okay. In, in, in Virginia. So, uh, when at that point, before you moved to Maryland, were you uh, were you picking up the guitar and the piano and starting to write your own songs? Yeah, I started noodling on the piano very early, and uh, just kind of learned some basic chords. And uh, the guitar was a little tougher for me because as a drummer. You, know, you use your hands in a totally different way than a guitarist. And right. I just couldn't fathom how people could form these chords with their fingers. It just didn't come natural to me. And I had somebody sit and really teach me how to go from G to C to D. And, and I just kind of slowly did it. And then you keep doing it. And one day it starts to click. And you got your basic folk chords. And then from there... You learn your bar chords, and you know somebody will show you. Oh, here's how you play a diminished chord, or here's a seventh chord. Right. So, you know, 
to build the repertoire. And so, you know, chords keep coming at you from different sources. And then, you know, in my case, from all the listening of music I did, I just kind of felt I could, you know, take a crack at writing my own songs, which I would do. And, and uh, I really enjoyed putting together chord progressions, especially ones that I hadn't heard before. And it's, you have an interesting array of like, your music's, I mean, you, you mentioned how you had these melodic ideas. Your solo records are very melodic. And all the song structures have like these like, I don't, four part harmonies a lot of the times, not all of them, but you know, there's all this yeah. lush harmony and all this movement that's happening within your songs. And like, that comes from like looking at, I'd imagine it comes from looking at the chords within it and building up and finding those voices that fit. Like, so to have that kind of in your head as you're figuring out these chords, is that expanding your, your like kind of melodic ideas and repertoire, learning some of these new chords and these new voices? Or is it just kind of like uh, making clear what you've been hearing? Yeah, I, I don't really think it through that much okay. intellectually at all. I, I, like I said, it's very emotional for me. Right. And so I just kind of hear ideas in my head and I'll start adding the harmonies I'm hearing without really analyzing it too much. I mean, I know technically what they are, but I don't really stress over, you know, oh, this should be this or this should be that. I just do it, whatever, you know, sometimes it could be a second that sounds dissonant until you put the fifth in there and all of a sudden you have this cluster that's working. Or, Things develop, but it's just kind of about making, you know, the song work where it feels good as far as, you know, adding, you know, various notes to, to harmony parts. Because harmony's always interested me in trying to, like, figure out how that works. Like, uh, I went to Cleveland State for... Um, for music, right, and you learn the you learn the traditional four part harmony movement, and that always kind of mm -hmm. the, the, kind of blew my brain a little bit. When you add seventh chords in there, then there's all these rules, right? And like when you listen to the records, it's like that, I don't I don't know if that that can't have been the process for that, you know? It's interesting, like yeah. how music is so so thought out and written out and clear, but at the same time so vague and felt. Like, yeah, they have the duality right. of that. I mean, I listen to something like The Four Freshmen, or even The Beach Boys, and I just can't even imagine right. what the, what's going on there. It's a whole other set of harmonies that I would never think of. So, you know, there's all kinds of ideas floating around that, you know, it's, it's, there's certain things you listen to and you can pick up on it, and then there's others that are, to me, I'm still not sure. If, you know, if I'm listening to the four freshmen type harmonies, what what's going on there? Right, and it goes by so quick, and you can only you can only latch on to one thing, <laughs> maybe yeah. two, as you're like, wait, what's that? <laughs> yeah, it's it's very complex. So I tend to not think about it too much as far as my own harmony structures. I just put in the next note. You know, and I'm doing it all myself, so I right. can build up each harmony and 
And a lot of it's trial and error. Makes sense. You know, not everything works out in yeah. the, the beginning, especially you know, when you're recording. And the good thing is what, that, you know, you know it's wrong. Right. You know it's right. I mean, even, but still, like, sometimes you can get caught looking at that tree as opposed to, you can get tunnel vision in, in the self-recording process and maybe not hear that note that's wrong and be building up all this other stuff around it and you still got that sour note in there. Is there, like, <laughs> do you have, like, a process of, like, getting to a point with a thing and then exiting the tunnel to come back and be like, what was I tracking? This is nonsense. <laughs> and start over? Uh, do you have, like, a... Well, I work with my wife Nancy she's engineering she's a very talented musician and plays bass on a lot of my newer recordings so it's like a little team so she she's listening as well and between the two of us I think we know if something's going terribly wrong <laughs> which they do you know sometimes things have to be brought back to the blackboard and the drawing board, as I say. Yeah. But, um, yeah, it's part of the process. It's Sometimes it's hard work, sometimes it's fun. And, but the main thing is, it's like with pitch. Yeah. You know, it's got to, the note's got to be the note. And there's no question about that. Yeah. So, if you're not hearing that, you're in big trouble. You know, Nancy will tell me, you know, that you're, that, that's flat. That's not good. And she'll make me do it again until it's right. Right. And so that's the process of, of getting everything, you, as, you know, close to in time and in tune as possible. To have someone to do checks and balances with, and that makes it a way, way, I think, more uh, uh, achievable process. Than like being in, okay the, the being in there by yourself doing it, um, and it's interesting because when you're singing right, the, it's coming out of you. It's hard to hear back, even though you got cans on, and like yep, it, it you yeah, know it's, it gets. I can tell you, it gets worse with age. <laughs> you know, I, oh no, <laughs> I, I don't hear as well as I used to, and so, but I hear you know when it's played back. Right. To me, then I hear it's clear as day. Oh, yeah, that's definitely flat. So the good thing is that I, I hear that, and I'm, I'm not going to let that slide. Right. Well, that's it's a... gotta be in, It's got to be in tune, and it's got to be in time, or it just sounds too amateurish, and it's not going to be enjoyable for the listener. Right. Well, and it, it's going on wax. Like, this is the take you have to live with. You know, you only get one shot to put the song out in the way it should be put out. And if you let it slide, <laughs> you just always hear that mistake. Yeah, no, I, cu I couldn't live with that. I I mean, that's the beauty of, of recording at home now. You don't have to worry about the clock and the money and just get it right. At yeah. least as right as you can. You're never going to get it totally right or you're never going to reach any sort of perfection. Well, that's, I mean, when did the, so that's the kit factory, right? That's what you call the home studio? Yeah. <laughs> so when did the kit factory come, like, I guess, as far as, like, that has to make sense, like, just having your own place to do it. A lot, a lot of people think that's the goal. And then to the, the learn the, all the things that go into doing recording yourself is a whole other thing. But, like, when did that, that become an idea and come to fruition 
that we're going to have this uh, well, studio at home? I had a couple major label deals. I was going into the big studios in, in, in L.A. and here in New York. And you know, there's always this concern about the budget and the red light going on. And, you know, and it was fun, and somebody else was paying for it, basically. Right. Of course, in the end, you're paying for it, really. But when I went back to just doing independent records, the technology was starting to change, and there was a period where ADATs came in, and I don't know if you remember the ADATs, but they were uh, eight-track recording players that used VHS tape. Right. And so we got a couple of ADATs, and that was our first experience as far as home recording. And we added a third one, and you know, so basically had like uh, a 16-track studio. And uh, we uh, just learned how to to do, which was basically analog-style recording, though it was technically digital because it was going on to these ADATs. But there was no computer involved. And then the computer came in and, and everything went digital. And so we got into that. And luckily, Nancy's smarter than I am, and she figured out how to, to engineer and do all this stuff. On we, we use Logic Pro. And uh, so we have that set up in our bedroom. And I still have to go in to a regular studio to do the drum tracks because we live in an apartment. Oh, okay. So we would uh, get ourselves thrown out of here if we tried <laughs> to do drum tracks. As it is, I had to build a semi-soundproof box for guitar parts. Right. It's like a wooden box yeah. with insulation and, and a speaker inside with a microphone. And then I have a regular Fender amp as my head, as my power source. And... It's going into the speaker inside the box. Oh, cool. And so it's all like you can kind of crank it a little bit and it's muffled. Yeah, it's. Uh, I would say, I don't know if it's half the volume or three quarters of the volume, but it's much softer than it would be if the amp was just out in the room. So we, we've we gotten away with that. We haven't had any complaints, so nice. that's good. That's, a, and, that's uh, an achievement of all achievements. <laughs> yeah. It's a rock and roll and the neighbors and, still be happy. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure they're they're hearing it, but it's not as nearly as loud as it would be. And then we have uh, the bass going direct usually, and yeah. uh, the vocals, of course, aren't a problem. So yeah, we we do it, everything in our bedroom after the drums are recorded. And, you know, just do the whole build up like the layer cake yeah. method. Start with the drums. Uh, I usually put just a simple chord. Uh, instrument down, either guitar or keyboard to sing to, and I, I just start working on the vocals first thing, get them out of the way. Right. Vocals always have... seem to be the hardest part. And like, yeah, I like to just have them down, hear them against the drums and the chord progression, and then I can sort of sit back and listen and start envisioning what the track should be from that point. Now, like when you go before a track's even recorded, is it? Are you writing like by coming up with the lyrics first? Are you a chord melody or chord progression, or is it a melody? Like what for you writing style wise? What is it that kind of starts it's, the it's song? It's chords first. Chords usually first. chords. If 
if I'm lucky, you know, chords and a melody kind of together, you know, I would say at least 90% of the time that's the way I, I write. Is I just kind of sit at the piano or guitar and have my chord progression worked out in the melody. And then the hard part for me is sitting down, coming up with an idea for what the lyric should be and then having to execute that. And that's like doing a homework assignment at that point. <laughs> just got to get done. And I try to do the best I can and keep a certain standard. You know, I don't want to just kind of like put throwaway lyrics in. I have to work at it. Right. Well, it definitely pays off because... Hey, I've been going through your, your catalog, which is dense. You got 14 albums now. I know the yeah. 14th isn't out yet, and they're not short albums. You know, what I mean, they're they're lengthy. They're not like eight songs per album with a lot of jamming right. in between. These are all written songs, and you do a, an excellent job of um, kind of like this uh, Ernest Hemingway approach, right? Like where it, you tell a story with like six words type deal. At least that's what I've noticed as a as I've been going through your your catalog, like, um, like taking a song like even uh, out of my hands, right? Uh -huh. So just that title by itself, and then how you expand on it within the verses that go up to the chorus is expertly done. Oh, so the well, homework you. pays off. <laughs> oh, good. Well, that's good to know. <laughs> I'm happy to hear that. Is a as far as like. The amount of like output. Do you have like a, a creative routine you do? Like a to like, I've been talking with some people and trying to like. Everyone has kind of like the the practice routine of keeping the chops up, but I not too many people expand upon their creative practice routine. So I think it's something that also needs to be practiced. You can't just like write fourteen albums worth of stuff. You know, there's <laughs> plenty of stuff in between the stuff that you don't hear. So that means you have to be writing a lot, or at least attempting to write that a lot. Is there like a, a routine? Well, again, here? I have a partner in Nancy, and I was, it's funny you bring this up because I was just writing a little essay about uh, we have a uh, song right now that's from the new album that we just kind of put out on our Kickstarter campaign, and I was writing a little bit about how I wrote the song, and I was talking about how I'll be noodling on the piano all the time, trying to come up with different ideas. And every now and then, I would say maybe 5% of the time of these noodlings, Nancy will stick her head in the door and say, what is that? And when she says that, I know that she thinks this is one that needs to be demoed before I forget it. Because I will, for I, I will forget the other 95%. They just kind of come and go. It's, I used to demo everything, and I got to the point where I have like literally 5,000 cassettes that are obsolete now, probably sitting in drawers with song ideas on them. And so I only de demo ones that, you know, catch her attention because I, I have to rely on somebody beside myself. You know, every now and then I'll, I'll, I'll have one that I insist upon. That, no, we got to demo this one. Just trust me on this. It's going to work out. And we do that too. So I do just a piano demo of a new idea. And then from there, I uh, 
start to think of it in terms of you know, a song. How, how can I turn this piano instrumental into a vocal song? Gotcha. So if if that makes the cut, it gets to go up to the next uh, process of it. Right. That's in. And as far as like noodling, do you have like a routine? Like I sit down every every day for an hour and noodle, or like, is it just when it happens? Yeah, it's just when it happens. Okay. Uh, I, I was just writing in this essay today how after my last album, which was called Pop Circles. We, right, which is a good pun on crop circles. Out, I don't know the exact time we put it out, but right after that, I experienced what I guess you'd call a complete burnout. Mm. And I had lost all desire to write or to release, to record. I just didn't have any interest in it. And it wasn't even a case of writer's block or anything like that. I just felt spent. Just right. didn't want to do it. There's enough music out there. and you know, we, we work so hard on each project, and then they come out, you know, and you basically have a few weeks of glory, and then it's over. And so I said, I just don't feel it. I just don't want to work on anything. And months and months went by, and then the pandemic hit. Right. Months into the, the quarantine and the pandemic, I still didn't want to do anything. And then one day I just felt like noodling again and I started working on stuff and uh, I made a concerted effort to keep this al new album to 12 songs because I, I could have easily done what I usually do, which is about 14 songs or more. But I just feel people really don't want to hear that many songs anymore. Attention spans just aren't what they used to be. and. You know, the traditional album when I was growing up was 12 songs, and then there were Beatle albums. The English Beatle albums sometimes were 14 songs, and that's where that came from. I was kind of just paying homage to the 14-song Beatle albums, but uh, this new album is the first album I put out with 12 songs. You know, like I said, there's a lot more that I could have put out as songs that were of the same caliber, I think, of the ones we used. But I, th I think people just appreciate a dozen songs and listen to it, hopefully, as an album. Yeah, it's interesting, oh. the, 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 like, attention span towards full albums and now singles and, like, um, the change between that. And even, like, the mm. attention to, like, detail. Like, coming from big bands, right, there's a lot going on. And even with, like bands like the birds and like these folk pop bands there's a lot of detail and stuff going on in like chordal movements and like it's not just a straight um beat with a, a kind of a singular melody with not too much harmonic uh, value going on or or changes which is okay uh, uh, you know simple is probably the best when it comes to to conveying yourself but it's interesting how the amount of Length, or at least the a length of a piece has dwindled down to almost like a song. Right. I, yeah, no, I agree with that. I just uh, think each individual song you work on gets whatever treatment it it's right. you know deemed to get. It's like some songs can be you know, two chords and be totally effective and some chords some songs i have have you know 12 chords and right and all kinds of harmonies and you know and interweaving parts more complex and it 
Yeah, no, it, it's I don't know. It's interesting. I just uh, I guess the the whole comparison of the length of the album is where I was kind of going with it, and then kind of got tangled in my own uh, <laughs> um, chordal <laughs> rant. But um, so the new album is copious notes, and yeah. uh, so what's what's are you still doing the Kickstarter? What's or is that? Um, yeah, yeah, we okay. have uh, the Kickstarter is about halfway through. And we're doing, you know, well, I'm pretty sure we're going to reach our goal and get that out to all the people that uh, contributed to that. Was that got exciting. The, yeah, I got the advance on Copious Notes and the the song Greater Good, the last one on the record. Uh-huh. Oh, that's a ripper, man. That's such a good song. Oh, oh you have the music? Oh, I didn't realize that. Oh, yeah. Howard must have sent that. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, man, it's it holds up. It's interesting, though. The last two records, right, are pretty kind of um, straightforward of uh, at least uh, copious notes. And what's the po- where's that coming from? Is it copious notes? Is it like what's the the story behind the title? Copious notes. Well, copious notes is uh, I don't know if you're aware is a kind of a cliche saying you know from when people are taking notes, say in a college course, mm. they're sitting in a lecture room and they're just writing a lot of notes. They usually refer to them as copious notes, just meaning a lot. Yeah. A lot of taking of notes. And I just was thinking about the double meaning of notes where you're writing notes in whatever language you're writing the notes in. And then there's musical notes. Right. That's cool. So I just thought it was kind of a, a little pun on, on on the old saying, copious notes, but thinking about musical notes. It's just, you know, another one of my silly puns. You know. But it <laughs> makes you like... think, you know, what, what is a note? Because even within music, it's defined in multiple ways, right? You got the rhythmic value of a note, like an eighth note or a quarter note, and then you got the pitch right. value of an yeah, A yeah. or B flat. And, you know, like, how it, one word describes multiple things in multiple fields. That's cool. Yeah, and then even the word copious has several meanings because I looked it up afterwards, and not only means uh, a, a large amount, it also means thoughtful and has a couple other meanings that kind of can apply to music, so it just seemed to work. That's a, a nice title. No, it's a great title, and it's a great batch of tunes. Um, oh, thank you. Yeah, I wasn't even aware that you had the music. I forgot Howard. Uh, He's on it. Howard's on has it. access to that stuff. <laughs> not too many people have it. Well, it's not going anywhere. It's great. Um, I, and, but what I was going to bring up was like compared to the few albums that came before, you have like a one album that like a is like mostly like a piano record, like a, a in. And before Pop Circles, I'm trying to remember the title of it. It's oh, like Tears. Che- tears. Tears. And like, yeah. yeah, and it's it's an interesting like process of like kind of building up to this back to like this kind of like um song cycle in a way. Um was there a was that kind of part of like the depletion you kind of felt like or exhaustion of like or was it just the burnout of constantly turning stuff out cuz your 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 career has been nonstop <laughs> like as far as <laughs> writing and like 14 songs and the amount of detail you give to each of those songs isn't—it's exhausting. <laughs> like, 
That's nonstop uh, hustling. Yeah, I guess. I mean, it doesn't feel that way to me, but uh, I don't know. The record Tears was just uh, a kind of thematic, I guess, what, what do they call it? A concept album, they used to call it. You know, I was trying to tell a story with the songs in a kind of semi-chronicle order. And most of the songs I was coming up with were piano-oriented. So between that and trying to orchestrate them, it just had a, a different production value than some of my more kind of uh, pop albums. Right. So it's like a linear and, narrative. In the but you know what I do a lot? that um, is, a, is a good trick. I'm not the only one who does this, but you know, I write a lot on piano and then put it all on guitar. Okay. Interesting. And uh, you know, it's funny, I just heard this story from Peter Asher talking about when um, Paul McCartney lived at his house in London and him, uh, Paul and John were down in the basement, and they wrote, I Want to Hold Your Hand on piano. And I always thought, wow, I always thought that was such a guitar song, because right. there's only guitar on the record. But it was written on the piano, and I'm thinking, God, it's so interesting that they had this song they wrote on piano, and then when they went to record it, there's no piano. They just turned it all over to the guitar. And so I, I've been doing that I started doing that before I heard that story, but it is a good way to kind of keep things fresh because you're going to write chord progressions on the piano that you would never think to do on on, on guitar and vice versa. Right. Yeah. So it when seems... you, you switch it over to the other instrument, it gets kind of interesting. Right. No, that's that's especially with piano because inversions and like spelling out chords are so different. Than on guitar, guitar is very blocky. Guitar is very yeah. like here's your G, here's your it's it's the same shape as your C, and you shift it. Where on piano yeah. you're thinking about each note and like almost coming from a drummer's perspective, I've noticed more drummers take to the piano than guitar, and I think that is that like um, ambidextrous uh, movement of two hands and like there's something about just the rhythmic component. I think. Uh, does yeah, that, technically, the, the piano is a percussion instrument. It makes sense because, and that makes sense why drummers take to it uh, more than. Yeah, that. I definitely took to it as a drummer, and uh, I really worked at it to get uh, independence between my left and right hand. Oh, interesting. So that at times I can use uh, you know individual fingers in my left hand. They were kind of strolling around instead of just playing chords or fifths, right? While the right hand is doing something else, and it it makes the piano part a little more expressive. And is that? Did you like? Because uh, you you played with a you did some piano like gigs gigs you played with Benny King, which is yeah, yeah. rad. Was that like a tour? Was that a show? How'd that happen? No, no, it was just some recording projects. Oh, okay, cool. And how did he reach out to you, or were you uh, like how that no, happened? I just, you know, I just was um, part of the band that was doing this project. Oh, okay, okay. And was that like in between, like uh, the Doughboys, like 
Um, oh, yeah, it was way out. Yeah, I mean, I can't remember exactly when that was, but... Okay. It just... Cool. Is that the same like kind of th- uh, thing that happened with Brian Wilson, or how playing with him come about? Yeah, that was a couple. Like, no, that wasn't recorded. That was a couple get live gigs. Oh, okay. Where he came to New York to do some shows, and and I got hired. Nice. That'd be crazy, especially like so yeah, much. Yeah, because he's one of my heroes, and yeah, I got to spend some time and and chat and play the music. And, uh, yeah, it was a real thrill. That's amazing. Such a fan. Was there, I mean, with a guy like that, I can't imagine him being, I can't imagine interaction with someone like Brian Wilson and not having, like, a lesson come from that, even if it's, like, a simple thing. Was there any, like, the lessons from playing with him that you adapted to your career post? Um, well, the thing mainly that struck me was his... And, I mean, he, he's, you know, a unique personality, and he's got his issues that are like his own personal right. business that I wasn't going to get into, but uh, he just seemed very uh, enthusiastic about certain things musically. When he, he heard something, you know, he would turn around to me and, make a comment about what I was doing in a very complimentary way and I was so thrilled because it was Brian Wilson saying something yeah, else about crazy. what I was, you know, contributing to a song that he's probably played, you know, hundreds and hundreds of times and so that that was a, a thrill. Amazing. That's a, the, just the, the get the gig and the, get positive feedback from that. That's amazing. Like, there's yeah, no coming was, down from uh, that. Right, that's true. <laughs> what, what, so to kind of go back to Link Ray, like, that, what a cool dude that guy is. Like, how'd that come around? Like, especially, especially for drums, dun 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 dun, rumble is such a drum song as much yeah, as it is a I guitar know. song. But, I, uh, moved down to Maryland and I was looking for work, and the uh, Washington Post had, their uh, classified section, and I was looking to see if there's anything for a drummer. And I see this ad, didn't say who it was for, uh, just, you know, basically the kind of typical, you know, drummer needed for a gig or whatever. And so I called, and uh, turned out to be Link Ray. And, yeah. I didn't, you know, being from New Jersey, I didn't even realize that Virginia, Virginia was right there. I was like, right next to Maryland, and to me, Virginia sounds like the Deep South. Right. But but it's right, it was literally, you know, 10 minutes away from where we were living, in, near Washington, D.C. And so I drove down to Virginia, went to Link's place, and uh, auditioned, and he was you know, seeing a bunch of people, and I got the gig. And it was just, you know, again, uh, you know, I honestly wasn't that, familiar with what right. he did. I knew Rumble, of course. Yeah. Luckily. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, he, he was a little, you know, before my time and I didn't really know all the the albums or the lesser known songs. Yeah, Rumble's one of those iconic things that just you just hear and know about. 
And so when we played Rumble, I, I knew what to do. And, and the rest of the songs, because that's got that kind of like 6-8 kind of thing. And the other songs are more just straight 4-4 four, four and straight ahead. So I could just fake my way through them. <laughs> So, but for him, yeah, it was all about the energy. He just wanted a lot of power and energy, and I just did my best. To, and, and I had my big 28-inch bass drum. There set. you go. Match my grip, here we go. <laughs> yeah, I did, I did a lot of match grip playing with him. Wow. What what was the take? Was there any lessons from Link Ray? That profound, any lessons? Yeah, like that profoundly um, shifted. Uh, oh, there were a lot, lot, a lot of stuff from Link. He's very nice to me, and... Uh, I mean, the main thing that I remember is the sound that he got, which just was so pleasant to the ear because it was like this big power chord, but you could hear each string and each note glisten very clearly and independently as well as the kind of grizzle of the power chord. And I never heard anybody get that sound before. Yeah, he definitely had his was, own tone, for sure. Yeah, it was a very exciting sound out of the amp. And I, I can't recall if he even had any boxes on the floor, but it was definitely some kind of amp-peg amp, and he was playing a Gibson SG. I remember that. It's very rewarding to play drums, too. It was just just bass drums and guitar it's a power trio which leaves a lot of space it's amazing that's so cool um so when you moved to maryland um you met nancy there right yes okay and she played in a she played in a few groups right there was uh the all the all female group yeah 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 what was the cheap name perfume. of that i couldn't what was it cheap perfume cheap perfume i was trying to find i was trying to find her her bands but i couldn't find it okay and yeah, how'd you guys know how meet? Much stuff they put out, but they they were um, doing really well in um, the kind of later uh, new wave punk era when CBGBs and and uh, Max's Kansas City okay. were the big spots, and they were headlining. I wasn't around at that. T I was out in California when they were really hitting their stride. Gotcha. Okay. And were you recording out there, or were you touring with a group? Uh, I was playing in a band called Cooper Dodge, which okay. was a um, kind of like a folk rock kind of band that was playing steadily out there, and it was fronted by two singer-songwriters who were very, very talented and kind of wrote uh, um, kind of in a folky style, kind of... Americana, almost, I guess you could say. Was that the vibe of the L.A., like more laid back and on, on the East Coast, they're punking it up type um, deal? Not, well, no, I thought Cooper Dodge was a little out of step with what was happening. Yeah. I, I did it because it was a steady gig, so I had an income. I'd never really you know, lived in California before, and I thought it would be fun. And uh, they... They were one of these bands that was, you know, very good. I wasn't even singing or anything in the band. I was just playing drums. And they were, you know, one of, you know, hundreds of groups that were looking for rec a record deal. 
and they were always on the verge of possibly getting one, but it never happened. Um, but really, at that same time, the power pop new wave thing was happening. Okay. Is that where and you... I had, I had already done a similar thing when I was living in Washington with this band I had called The Rage, which was the first band that I really fronted as a guitar player and singer. And I started writing in that more kind of melodic pop style that had been sort of suppressed before. So that was the beginning of that. Was there... um? So kind of going from like a a drumming gig to an, a, a, a um, lead gig, like was there a certain laid backness to the drumming gig? Like I got this, and like a certain like kind of like a fudge. Like how do I handle this type of gig? Or was it? Did you feel like it was a natural switch to be able? Oh, to... when I went up front. Yeah, yeah. Front band. Uh, it, at first it was disconcerting for sure. Uh, yeah, I, I definitely had that I got this kind of feeling when I'm back on the drums. So I, to this day, I still consider that my main instrument. And, I mean, I'm always a nervous wreck playing live. I would have a terrible stage fright, but less so, I guess, as a drummer. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm up front. I'm terrified. It's, uh, you know, especially, you know, those clubs where you couldn't hear yourself sing, the monitors weren't happening, and the band would just be so much louder than you were expecting, or the mon- you know, whatever monitors they had, it was all bass and drums, and you couldn't even, you know, feel the musicality anymore. Yeah, that definitely does make a, make a difference when you can't hear where you're at, and like when your yeah, voice I mean, is very dependent on feel. I know, you wonder how these groups back in the 60s did it without monitors, but but I um, I used to hate, you know, you'd go into the clubs and you re- rely on the house sound guy, and some of them were better than others, and some of them, you know, they all like to crank up the bass drum really loud. And the, it got to the point where it was, a, it was more oppressive than musical. Right. Well, they're trying to get, and, the, trying to get the people in. <laughs> yeah, you feel I guess. that bass they come on in. Would, man, they would pump that low end and kick drum so loud, it was dominating everything and so those kind of gigs started to you know get me a little jaded about playing the club scene but you know you had to do it right did you notice a a coast-to-coast thing with the drum mix i forget i was talking with someone a while ago and they noticed that uh like a more east coast was drum and guitar heavy compared to like um west coast Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, maybe. I mean, okay. you can't. It's hard to generalize. You know? Right. I think it was just the yeah, individual sound men, some of them. But there, there definitely was a trend of really kicking up the low end to the point where it just got ridiculous. I mean, I've been to professional shows where I just sometimes had to leave because was, all I heard was boom, boom, boom. Right. This low kick drum and bass and it's like, where's the music? I can't. I remember, um, you know, getting so tired of that and every now and then you'd go to a show 
and the headliner would come on and you'd go, here we go, we're going to get like blasted. And it would just sound like perfect. It would sound like a record. And he said, why can't they do this like all the time? For example, Nancy had never seen the Stones before. And we went to see them at Giant Stadium. And I thought they were going to come on and just be like, you know, so loud and blasting. And we, we were fairly close. And they came on and it was like within the first five seconds, I knew they were going to sound just perfect because the way it was mixed was like the record. Nice. Was so it... it's like, duh, the magic's going to start. Yeah. Is, there, is there like a, with, with this, like, um, when you see a band like that and like, well, actually, no, let me rephrase that. How much of the Stones influenced the Doughboys? Because I definitely get some Stone vibes. Oh, a lot. Yeah, the Doughboys were heavily, you know, our lead singer, Mike Scavone, was you know, just a natural front man. And, to, you know, most of these uh, singers that, you know, were doing like a garage rock thing, Mick Jagger is the prototype. So he had a lot of that, along with, other, you know, a lot of other influences. But, yeah, no, to this day, I, I have a great, appreciation of, of the stones they're just amazing charlie watts is right incredible in the pocket that dude's a oh, living metronome yeah. <laughs> i know it's just like uh the other day you know we can't go to the gym right now because of the quarantine and stuff so every morning i dj for nancy so she can dance to get exercise and we i, I mainly you know play like early rock and roll, 50s right. and 60s stuff. And we were playing, I was playing the Stones, and she's just in the middle of dancing, just said, Charlie Watts is just driving this thing, like, unbelievably. It's like he's so in command. and then he, He's great. I mean, it's Ringo, the same thing. I mean, they just were in the pocket and recorded some, something to the Yeah. Something to the simple. Yeah. Was the take it? Did she dig the stones from seeing them from the first time? Did she get it? <laughs> did Nancy or? Yeah, Nancy, because that you said that was the first oh, time. Oh yeah, you guys she went... was blown. She was blown away because she had never seen them before, and I remember at one point I leaned over to her and I said, "It's all about Charlie, because it's all about Charlie Watts, because he could really hear him and you he could hear how." He was propelling the whole thing. Yeah, I was um I was supposed to see the Stones right before the shutdown in June. I had tickets, and I was really uh -huh. bummed because that would be the first time I've got to see them aside from like live videos and stuff. Yeah, <laughs> but uh, you, kind of on the topic of venues, I've noticed you guys with the Doughboys and solo career, um, Arlene's Grocery. You guys seem to frequent there. Is that like a oh that club Arlene Grocery? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, that was in the neighborhood where I, you know, where we live, and so it was easy to book, and it was a nice sounding room. Right. My, uh, I play in a band called C Level, and um, letter C dash. I know there's an SEA level. Figure that out a little too. Oh late. yeah, yeah. I remember that. <laughs> but um, uh, the right before the shutdown, we did a a like a weekend a weekend uh, 
out of town trip, and the one place we played, one of the places we played, was a uh, Arlene's Grocery. And oh, okay. So that was like the week before the shutdown. We came right back, right when it shut down, and like that was our first like real good, you know, like when you play out of town enough, eventually you start to build the crowd. Like we finally yeah. had a good night in New York, and it is so cool, and then everything stops just about. Yeah, I know. But that's a cool venue, man. And it's got a yeah, cool room. Did you have to bring a kit? Huh? I know they're pretty like use our stuff. <laughs> yeah, no, I um, well, we shot a video there. Right. Like a live video. For that, I brought my own drums. But if we just did a gig there, it would just be the house cut. Gotcha. Cool. <laughs> Saves on the trip. Like that whole like a uh, a few blocks. There's a couple venues there that are really that's a really happening spot. Um, yeah. It, I don't know what's going on now, but yeah, it was. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Everything in everything in New York is is changed. It's you know we're just kind of waiting to see. If and when things are gonna get back to so-called normal, right? Yeah, or the new what the new one looks like. Yeah, it was weird because yeah. when I went out there, people were like kind of wearing masks and kind of like, uh, like at the end of the night trying to shake hands with the owner. They're like, yeah, yeah, cool. I'm like, uh, <laughs> uh, uh, all right, you know. I'm like, everything hadn't hit yet, and like, in New York was kind of prepping for it, and it was really weird um, time to time to play because like. You know, you, everyone's by each other and stuff, but everyone's acting kind of weird. It was a real weird, uh, weird beginning mm. of that turnover, and a weird place to to see it, comparative to Ohio. Um, yeah, but you know what I mean. Like, it's a lot. There's a lot more space in Ohio. <laughs> <laughs> um, so with the with the recording of copious notes and living room, what are the sim? Because both of those were or. Yeah, living room was all done at home, right? Uh, I don't know they, well, no, living room was done at uh, somebody else's living room. Okay. <laughs> okay, so it that wasn't was, that was originally recorded with analog tape. Okay. That was before all this digital stuff. So, because I was, uh, it was just it was just called living room because it was in the living room, but it right. wasn't my living room. Okay. So the drums were recorded there then. Yeah. <laughs> nice. Uh, what, what I was going to ask was what kind of being the start of the DIY recording career compared to where it is now, comparing the process of copious notes and living room, w is there a lot of similarities or a lot of differences that you've noticed from going from the rip to where you are now, tracking and writing wise in um, the home? Well, most of it's really more about the technology that's changed. As far as coming up with the songs and the parts and the ideas, that's pretty much remained the same as far as just the generalization of what you have to do. I mean, ideas change and hopefully you improve with time, but the technology's so radically different now. You know, and you can do things you couldn't do that. I mean, sometimes the limitations actually were assets. Right. Because you were forced to limit yourself. I mean, living room was done on eight tracks. That was it. You're done. Yeah. And so we had to come up with ideas that were going to work, and then you had to stop. <laughs> now you could go on forever, and, and we were just 
talking about uh, this, in our one of the videos on our Kickstarter campaign, Nancy says to me um, that uh, Leonardo da Vinci once said that art is never finished, only abandoned. Mm. Yeah. And and it's so true because that's how I feel. I just can't stop myself. I'll start working on something and I just want to keep going because I think I'm going to get it better and sometimes you're not getting it better. Sometimes you are, but you need, sometimes you just got to stop right. or you need somebody else to make you stop. <laughs> and that's where Nancy steps in? Yeah, that's where she <laughs> steps in. But... Uh, I'd probably still be working on it. Yeah. That's a beautiful. What a beautiful partnership. That's so cool. That's so cool. That yeah, like, it really is, is. You know, besides all the other good stuff, but that the whole musical partnership is different. Right. It's a marvel a, to me because I I, w- I would sound horrible without her because I don't have the patience or the frankly the the ears that she does so. It's, Right. Well, that's that kind of shows you how important the the, the engineer or the producer or the the sound guy is to making the core of it sound right and like to have someone be like do it again and like yeah. I mean, and then on top of that, we we used to mix our own stuff, but then at one point we decided, ah, you know, let's get a pair of fresh ears right to mix all these tracks because. We're so burnt on recording and so kind of inside the whole thing that we can't be objective. So we we got a really talented mixing engineer to to mix our stuff, and we've been using him on everything since Tony Lewis. And so he deserves a lot of the credit because you know, he's getting all these raw tracks, and then he mixes them, and then with my approval, we get it done. Right. You know, he, we keep. We go back and forth until we're everybody's happy. Yeah, and that's that's a whole art in itself is putting the the colors on the canvas on the canvas. I don't know why I'm slurring my words today. On the canvas, you know, putting it, seeing the thing as like one big thing because you you know you get the tunnel vision on the the take and the conveyance yeah, of the emotion it. of the it, song. So to have like that, someone can thing. do that. It's really cool. <laughs> yeah, oh, it's such a load off because I, I used to hate sitting there. Because there's so much like grunt work and prep right. work in the mixing process, and to me, it's just a total bore. <laughs> I feel it. I, I just want to hear the finished product. Yeah. No, I. You feel... know what I mean? I, I don't have that whole technological desire to work on the stuff like that. Right. I'm just. I just want to like hear the song back, see how it makes me feel, and then get it out for others to hear. But that said, I don't like to settle either. So you know, we're we're going back and forth. He's he's down in New Jersey, and I'm in New York. So the mixes are getting sent back and forth, and he sends, and I say, you know, I like it, but I think it needs this, this, and this, and so he'll work on it some more, and we keep tinkering, and yeah, eventually you got to stop. Yeah, uh, you know, I, ne- I never get it to the point where I'm totally happy. You just can't. You know, it never ends up being as good as you you thought it was going to be. Or as... But that said, you, you know, you got to kind of 
feel like you did the best you could and move on. Right. Well, then the, the new batch of tunes comes and you start it all over again. And uh, <laughs> Yeah, a- I know. Well, that's, that's how I felt after Pop Circles. I just like, ah, I don't want to do this anymore. It's too much work. But and it just kind of came back and I, I did it again, you know. Not sure what I'm going to do next, but at least I have 14. It's a nice even number. I didn't want to end with 13 for sure. Right. So. <laughs> Go out even. Broke even. Yeah, got <laughs> you know, a nice 14 is a nice even number. But I've been having fun with uh, these songs because we, as part of the Kickstarter campaign, offered unplugged versions and acapella oh, versions cool. and instrumental versions. And that to me is more fun than the <laughs> finished ones. I, I I love just you know working like some of these I got down to just piano and one single vocal. Nice. Is that kind and of like the process of, for playing live, working backwards like that? Say that again. Is that kind of like a, a process for doing it live? Once you record it, get the get the the whole thing like the lush harmonies the the wall of sound which you do a really good job at incorporating with a lot of your tunes but when you play live it's hard to recreate that so is that kind of a similar process that, as that's learning? true well i um i mean i'm not really planning on it there's no place to play right now anyway right. So i'm not really thinking about that but uh, that's an interesting point uh i would say you're i always looked at the live thing as a totally different animal okay recorded I never tried to replicate live, but that said, in the band that I had, there were four strong okay. singers that knew harmony, so I could do, you know, four vocals at once, and we did a lot of that. And, you know, it's never going to sound like double track like the record, but yeah, that's okay. Part. okay. But, that's cool. But, so uh, you, you're reworking these piano arrangements and these acapella arrangements of everything. Yeah, this is for people that donate a certain amount of money on the Kickstarter campaign will get right. these versions. And they're really interesting to me. Uh, the, you know, the acapella stuff, you can really make out, you know, parts that you can't really decipher in the full finished mix. So that's fun. Yeah, for people that are into that. And, you know, some of them, you know, really hold up as a, an acapella song or some. The breakdowns, like just like one or two instruments and the vocals are nice. Because you, you hear things. I mean, one of the things that always drove me crazy is we put a lot of effort into each part, and some of the parts, you know, you can't make out in the finished mix because right. they're working against other things. and got to balance it out. They become, like you said, like a wall of sound that certain things have to give. So it's nice. You know, I think people would be amazed at the stuff that's on records that they they don't truly hear because of the mix. So, you know, every now yeah. and then you'll see, you'll see something on YouTube where somebody's breaking down one of their songs, each part, and you hear things that, is, oh my gosh. You know, like there's some channel on YouTube that has the Beatle uh, vocals isolated. Yeah. I think I followed that and, guy. And, you know, I hear, I, I hear stuff that I thought I knew for sure, and it's like, oh, he's singing a totally different note than I realized. Right, because when it's all mixed. all these mixed. years. 
there's it's hard to break that that wall of is that coming from the guitar or is that the vocal you know like when it's yeah. that much in the background you know what i mean or uh, i mean i guess the beatles would be hard to say that with but it is really cool there's something seeing it all come together is cool too you know there's something rewarding about oh putting the lego pieces together and seeing the seeing the castle or whatever <laughs> but to yeah. do that sonically you don't usually you get only get the full product so that's a really cool thing to offer um, um, for a Kickstarter campaign, <laughs> like the the see the inside baseball and everything. Yeah, it's it's fun to put together too. Uh, these we're mixing ourselves, and we're just getting. Uh, at least I, I don't know how Nancy feels. <laughs> I'm getting a lot of pleasure out of just you know hearing the piano on its own, for instance, right. where you can hear exactly what I'm playing. You know, there's songs where you can't even hear the piano, but it's in there. Right. Is, you know, all these most of these songs start with the piano as my guide, and so we send them down to our mixing engineer. But a lot of times the piano ends up sort of back in the mix, and the guitars take over, which is cool. But yeah, it's just nice, nice to have a version where you hear the piano. Like you mentioned, the greater good. I just did like a breakdown of just the piano and vocal. Oh, cool! I'm, I'm trying to decide for the unplugged one whether to put the harmonies in, but I, I'm leaning towards just a solo vocal and piano, as if it's just you know some guy sitting down. Right. I mean, the, I think yeah. the harmonies are the harmonies on the song are sweet. So, uh, I <laughs> but I think that the song itself holds up. So, like as a solo piece, I think that'd be really cool. Yeah, yeah, I'm I'm really liking it, just piano and vocal, and it's got a kind of a, almost a gospel feel about it. So I imagine really like, that. like a song like Nearly There, I bet that'd be a really cool acapella version, because it comes in with like It the... is, yeah, 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 I'm very excited about that one, because that has parts, I mean, the vo that's one of the most complicated harmonies I've ever done, you can't really appreciate it in the finished mix, because it just sounds like a kind of a a pop harmony but right. when you hear the parts they're really even for me like totally uh, unique and, and different than anything I've ever done and you don't really hear it until you hear the acapella uh, I have um, the uh, kind of breakdown unplugged version right now yeah with all the harmonies in and that's another one I'm debating whether to leave them in or not for the people that get the unplugged version because they'll hear it uh, in the acapella one, but they just won't hear the chords behind it. So it's a trade-off. But I was just kind of like surprised because I forgot what some of these harmonies are so convoluted because they're coming from the piano part. Right. You know, a lot of times, you know, like when you're playing and your right hand is playing the melody with the harmonies built in on your right hand. Yeah. They're playing harmonies that just wouldn't naturally come to you as a harmony singer or right. you know, somebody that's into pop music. But they sound really nice on the piano, and then when you go to sing them, they sound so weird when they're on their own, but as part of the group, it works. And I, I found that really an interesting example. It's one of the few times... I just was really surprised at the notes and the harmony on that on Nearly There, right. which it's, is the opener, opening song on the new album. 
that's an interesting perspective, right? Because like certain notes, especially if they're laid out on a piano, right? Like a lot of country like pianos will add that ninth, you know, right there at the beginning, do like a little the fill. I don't know what you call that fill, yeah. but there's that country thing where they roll in the ninth, and that's a yeah. really dissonant sound, right? But when it's played with everything, yeah. it's really nice. And if you take that that second and bump it up to the ninth, it's a beautiful sound. Where you know, like. Yeah. It's a really interesting perspective of how to look at how to look at things. Like, is it is it terrifying or is it beautiful? I guess depends <laughs> the angle of it. Yeah, it's just uh, the human brain hears sounds and either accepts it or you know. We sometimes Nancy and I will discuss just what, why is it that people like one four five like in the blues. Right. It just sounds. You know, why are those chords the ones that sound right? To the human ear, you can't really explain it. It just does. It is. A, it's a really interesting phenomena, right? Like the the resolve, right, of the five to one. Yeah. How, like, in our culture, how mm. that how that the brain internalizes that as such a rewarding thing to hear. Right? Yeah, yeah, right. It's it's like why is the five chord feel like kind of the end chord? You know, right. Like that. And, and like, why is and the four chord sounds like you know a passing chord to the five or back to the one. It's just like unexplainable. It just does. Right. It's. I mean, maybe somebody can explain it to me, but I, you know, because if you tried to do a blues, you know, going from say uh, C to an E major, right, <laughs> it would just sound horrible. Right. I mean, a, you know, it wouldn't work. Right, uh, or uh, yeah, or, or a three, six, uh, two, <laughs> yeah, like progression in the blues. Anything other, I mean, occasionally you'll hear the two chord in the blues, or even uh, like the swing the stuff, relative minor or something, or the the uh, relative major, even like you know, in the key of C, you could sometimes have a D seventh and an A in there, but. They're a little more sophisticated blues, but you know, usually all you need is the one, four, and five, and you're totally happy. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. Well, one, I guess, uh, I guess there's like a whole ratio principle, right, to the scale, the notes within the scale, like singular. Like if you were just playing a one, four, five, and a more consonant ratio uh, or more consonant sounds have a equal ratio, and I guess that has something to do with how the brain perceives it as a rewarding sound, right? And a dissonant, like a minor, or a, a, a has like a more um, uneven ratio of the note. So neurologically, that's kind of a thing that factors into why that works. But that doesn't really factor culturally. In, you know what I mean? To why you're making my brain hurt. <laughs> but, uh, all I can say is, if you say so. I mean, so, I don't know. Well, this know is I, don't, just... I don't know. Maybe you're right. It's a little too complicated for me. Stuff I've dove into. Uh, <laughs> uh, it's interesting. I, I just I agree with you. I find that so fascinating. And you only need those three chords, and you can get rid of the middle one and just do a one and five, and you can have the most rocking song. You know, you can have the most meaningful oh, yeah. song to someone's life with just yeah. two chords. It's so cool. <laughs> well, look at uh, Everyday People by right. Sly and the Family Stone. Right. One chord, and the bass. Does the walk only up thing. plays one note? Right. I mean, it doesn't even play 
any sort of melodic line. It's just staying on, and you never question it, or it never gets boring. I don't know why. It's just, I guess, the melody on top and the groove. It's, it's all working. I mean, that's unusual, but it just goes to show how it can be done if you have the right elements. Right, right. And I guess the, those other elements are really what brings it out. Or even if you look at So What by Miles Davis, there's two chords, mm. and it's a it's a half step. You know, what I mean, it's not even the one five thing. It's just kind of floating around <laughs> one. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. A... Occasionally, you'll get a song where they never hit the one chord. Yeah. But you know that's the key that it's in, which <laughs> is really weird. That is really weird. That ex- ex- um, <laughs> I think of that song by Fleetwood Mac. Um, what's that song there? And the one about thunder only happens. What's that song? Oh, um, I forget the name. Of it. Well, it's not the name of the bit. Yeah. Thing. Changes? Is that it? Dreams. Dreams. Or, Dreams. Yeah, whatever it is. But <laughs> it's going. It's just going. I think from the four to the five, over and over. Right. Four to five, and right. it's never in the one. But you know, it's in that key. It's it's in that key in that. I think or it's at C. least a musician would know. Right. And. There's something very compelling about that. Yeah, it's almost. I mean, that's I unusual, but it's it's just kind of another example of how the human brain processes these things. It sounds right, even you know, to the layman and to the musician. It's just they're not going to the root. They're not just floating in this other zone that's just leaving you hanging. But it feels good. In a dream, I guess, right? It fits the song. Yeah, maybe it's got that's right. Do you uh, do you ever like like quality? Sorry, (laughs) over the phone, it's kind of. But yeah, it it has the dream like quality. It's weird. Do you do that sometimes with songwriting? Do you take like a weird like uh, music approach like that? Has there been any songs like where you've attempted? I try sometimes. I try to do something different, or again, I don't let that dictate. Right. Right, right. You know what I'm trying the to accomplish because I don't want to just do something for, you know, trying to be clever. I, I, I try with each song to make it move me in some way that makes sense to me. Right. You know, I always, I always say to Nancy, you know, if the song is moving me and or you, there's got to be another human. We're all human. There's got to be at least one other person out there in the world that's going to have that effect on them, and that's all I care about. Right. No, that makes sense. That makes sense. It's coming from the conveyance of of your emotion, and that's yeah, what's I'd like resonate. it to be millions of people, but I'm not greedy. So, <laughs> uh, if there's one person even that just gets the same feeling that I got. I feel like mission accomplished. Cool. Um, I got a couple more questions. I really appreciate your time. I know we've been talking for a minute. Yeah, I got to run soon. Go. Okay. Go. Um. Uh, uh. Mary from the Shangri Las. What was it like working with her? Oh, that was a delight. Very nice person, very talented singer, and uh, it was a fun gig, and it was a little uh, mind-boggling because I was never hired before as a lead guitar player, and I I was the only guitar player, so I had to handle all the hit songs that she had, plus her, her new stuff, and she wanted me to replicate the guitar parts and solos that were on the her her album, her recent album. So that was a challenge for me because, uh, like I say, my main instrument is the drums, and 
I always looked at the guitar and the piano as tools to write songs. And then when I started to front the band, I said, oh, geez, I guess I better start to really learn how to do this a little bit more proficiently. So I, you know, I tried to uh, get better on the guitar. You know, the piano and the keyboards, you know, I start to get around pretty good. Because like I said, it's part of the percussion thing. So I, right. I got a little more confident with that but the guitar is always you know it's a hard instrument and so uh but i've got it to the point now where uh, as far as recording i can you know put down parts that work for the song nice and like was it the process of doing that um was that in between like when did you when did was it a tour with her was it just a couple performances Oh, with them, uh, yeah, no, it was uh, live gigs. Okay. Uh, she just had come out with a record and needed a backing band, so I got. Hi, I don't know why I, you know, why they hired me to play the guitar, but That's awesome. you know, I was flattered, and you know, it was a challenge, and I, I, I said, I'm, I'd like to do that. I love her music, and she was great to work with, so that uh, it all worked out. Nice. And uh, you worked with Jonathan Richmond from Modern Lover? How was that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was just a gig that, uh, yeah. you know, okay. live gig that a drummer, you know, was needed and I got hired. Nice. Different style, though, right? Yeah, you know, he's got his thing and I, I did the best I could. <laughs> That's sick. That's cool. Just the... The repertoire within your career, they have all this songwriting, just like to be able to write as much as you have and record it to the quality and uh, sonically and um, lyrically as you do, and to be able to do all these live gigs with multiple bands and handle all this is is very, very uh, inspiring. Um, I personally have trouble saying no to things, and mm -hmm. was there a point, I guess my last question is, was there a point where you're, that became a skill set to say no to things? Or are you still working on, am I going to be saying yes to things forever? <laughs> uh, well, things have kind of ground to a halt because of the pandemic. So as far as offers to play live, that's kind of non-existent right now. And uh, as far as, you know, my own thing, I always... You know, could say yes or no to myself as far as if I want to keep keep uh, moving on or not. But uh, I certainly don't do it for the money. So uh, every now and then, if the feeling comes back, I'll I'll start noodling again and see what happens. Oh, and one one last. Do you still have that Kent drum kit? Oh no, that's long gone. <laughs> That's long, long gone. I, I uh, had my same Ludwig kit that I had as a kid for years, and then when we moved into our new apartment, my floor tom went missing somewhere on the move. We never found it, and so I started looking around to replace it, and I decided to just get a new set. So I got a, not a new set, but I got a, a vintage Ludwig kit. Nice with a twenty-eight, <laughs> twenty-eight inch bass, and it's no, rock. no, twenty-four. <laughs> I went to the twenty-fourth, but I uh, 
started going a little crazy, and I ended up having three uh, uh, Ludwig Slingerland and a Rogers vintage, you know, 1960s four-piece kit, all with 24-inch bass drums and double floor toms. Cool. Got cool. them, you know, off of eBay. Um, but, yeah, of course, they're just sitting in the closet, but... All right, well... Thank you so much for hanging out with me and taking all this time oh, to Dan, chat. It was our pleasure. I, my pleasure, and I uh, appreciate all the interesting questions and insights you had. So well, thanks. It means a lot. I tried cool. to do a fair amount of work into all these uh, interviews, so that I'm glad to hear. <laughs> yeah, I know. I'm, I'm uh, excited that you have the, the, the album. I, I feel... I feel this way about all my stuff, but especially this new album, just got to give a, a few listens and it'll sink in all of a sudden I hope yeah at a certain point the second or third listening chord progressions and melodies and things will start to click and make sense to the listener I, is it you know, some some of them will on the first listen but yeah there's certain songs I, I I know take a few listenings to really hit you know and make make sense so right give it a or even just listens. No, definitely. Like I've given it a few spins before we chatted, but even just oh, like okay. as as you know, you recorded it. <laughs> How many times do you gotta listen to it to accept it when it's all done, or do you never accept yeah, it? Yeah, you know, I'm I'm you know burnt out. I mean, you <laughs> listen to the hundreds and hundreds of times right. you're working on it and all the time, and it's just like the minutia right. of all these parts. How does how does the bass sound? Is the snare? Is it? Is that now a out of phase? What? Like, oh, yeah. <laughs> I don't I get mean, that. It's, <laughs> it's it's there's endless, you know, because right. especially in today's process, there's so many layers that you can put into these things. Right. You know, a lot of these songs have so many. I mean, I overdo it a lot, <laughs> but you know, there's just so many guitars in there and all kinds of little things in the back. Well, that, you, you that, don't even hear you just kind yeah. of feel them more than you hear them yeah but that makes but it that makes it fun. you know what i mean that makes the thing you're you're trying to convey the feeling and like the yeah, little things bring that out <sighs> awesome little tight little tidbits in there that you hope somebody will hear maybe on the third listen or fourth listen oh i didn't know that was in there i didn't Right. Well, so it's, it's kind of a fun, fun thing with with the pop music. You can put all that stuff in there. Yeah, you know, you got to try to leave a little some space and some air as well. So it's a, that's the challenge. Yeah. No, definitely is to 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 build the atmosphere and take away and like, <laughs> and that's hard to do because you can always add something to to highlight something else. Yeah. And, well, a lot of it is, like I said earlier, trial and error. I do put things in there that that don't work out and that we end up not using all the time. You know, but it's like you don't know that until the piano tracks back in. Or <laughs> it's fun. Yeah, you know, it's you so got... fun. And it's it's a lot. It's yeah. overbearing. But when it all said it's done, it, it, it see like I've recorded a few, nowhere near 13, out, 14 albums, but I've recorded a lot I've, for what my schedule admits and like just doing that process of listening back and like it's overwhelming and then but it's also fun like when everything's like almost done 
when you're doing the little things where you're like, yeah, let's add some mm-hmm. horns on that. <laughs> like that's the most yeah. fun when everything's like the hard work's done. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I really enjoyed working with the real extra instruments on this album because yeah. there's no no synthesized anything. Everything you hear, like the horns are all real people playing, and the, all the string parts are real. There's you know no keyboard strings, so it's kind of got this organic feeling. I I played, you know, some of the songs with strings to a friend and he's Scott, where'd you get that string sample? That's the best string sample ever. I said, That's not a string sample. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's some woman <laughs> playing violin and viola and she just kinda of multi tracked herself to the point where she sounded like uh an orchestra. Yeah. That's a, it, there's something to definitely like the samples work but there's something to someone actually doing it and being able to put their unique uh, twist to it, even if they yeah. play the part that is sampled out. There's something it, audibly human about it. Yeah, the woman uh, who plays most of the strings on the album, we didn't even ask her to, to multi-track herself. We, I oh, cool. sent out the parts, and she like played each part six times. Nice. So she really layered it up. She knew what you were going to do. Yeah, she, yeah, it got to the point where it was so creamy. I mean, it literally sounded like this string section of an orchestra. And, you know, I wasn't expecting that. But when I heard it, it's like I could not use it. It was, just, it was so lush and nice. And I just said, yeah, the hell with the string quartet. Let's go with the New York Philharmonic. <laughs> That's awesome. Dot com. Was... All right, David, I got to run. All right. Thank you so much. Good for talking this to you. Great. Likewise, um, I look forward to uh, hopefully meeting you one day when I can go back to New York. Mm-hmm.